Hey there, fellow humans. Mark Labusque, a Simply Practically Human podcast. And um, my guest today, I met eight years ago, and I'm not going to tell you much more than that. His name is Stefan Bramble. He is one of the most incredible human beings I've ever met. He is the master of play and playfulness. And he's a trained clown, or he's trained in clowning. He'll talk about that a little bit as well. Not your red nosed clown, a bit of a different thing there. Think about Sasha Baron Cohen and, and, and those types. He's going to share how he got to where he's got to and how he creates magic in workplaces that embrace the idea that play is not the opposite of work. Have a listen, take some notes, be fascinated as I was the first time I met him and I still am fascinated every time I talk to him. I'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark Labusque talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. I am absolutely delighted today to be joined by an incredible human being who I've learned so much from, and I hope he's maybe learned a little bit from me. It is the Director of Play and Connection for an international tech company and just all-round bloody good human, Stefan Bramble. Stefan, thanks for coming on, mate. Hi, Mark. I had to, because I know about clean audio, I had to resist the temptation to laugh over your wonderful introduction because it sounds so fancy. It's great. I love well, being here. <laughs> well, you're a very fancy human being, mate. And you, you, Here's the other thing too. It is okay to laugh. <laughs> on the podcast, it is all. Great. It's also okay to swear because at times we we can't help ourselves, and the bogan will come out. Certainly in me, I don't know what will come out in you, but um, yeah. it's okay if we get get a bit passionate. Hey, mate, I know this story because I've heard it many times, but I know the listeners haven't. Your first impressions of me, <laughs> the very first time we met. Ah, aha. I, well, okay. So there are a mix, yeah, and I'll go with the part that I was really attracted to uh, when I first met you. We met on the street and at the time I was working as a youth facilitator at a youth organisation and one of the young people that we'd been working with said, hey, I'm about to do practice a pitch with my mentor for some money for this uh, foundation I want to set up. Can you come in and, and have a look? And I walked into the room and there was... There was Mark Labusque in his business shirt, being very much a uh, business alpha man. And uh, what I was really attracted to was you sort of ran, you effortlessly stepped into leading the session because a lot of us didn't know why we were there. And you had no fear in getting up and leading the session. There was no hesitancy in what you were doing. And I really responded like really well to that. There was another part of me that because of my experience of as a, as a young man who grew up in like the performing arts industry, I think there's a fear of, for want of a better word, like footy men, you know, there's this fear of that type of male and also in inside myself as well. And so there was part of me that was like, what's this footy dude like, like, What's he, you know, like, is is he mean? Will he make fun of me? Will he just run roughshod over everything and, like, make it all his own? And that interested me because we were opposites. And then 
during the session, you and I started to what I would call dance together. We were holding different parts of the same thing for this young man who we were mentoring. And the synergy between the two parts was really beautiful. There was this practical element to the way you presented your work. And then there was this artistic side to what I was doing. And I just remember being like, there's something about you and I just want to keep up this connection, which we then did. And then chaos ensued. So that was my (laughs) first impression. What about you? (laughs) So shout out to the Jamin Heppel. Because, um, Mm -hmm. and I know he could be anywhere in the world now, the the things that he does since he sort of set up his foundation, I know he he does marathons and he also climbs big mountains and he, I'm not sure where he is in the world, but a a great human being. And um, my first impressions of you, it was like, I was actually, there was intrigue. I'm like, this dude sitting across from me, he is so not me. Um, He is, he could be a whole lot of different things. I was trying to work out straight away, like, what's the cultural background on this dude? He could be every, he could be anything, and I'm sitting there going, <laughs> trying to work it out. And uh, but um, I think I saw some things that I wanted. There was, let's call it, for a better word, that sort of gay abandon of just like he's just yeah, this guy's so free. But the other thing with him is he's fucking smart, mm-hmm. and. Um, I think there were times where I was, I reckon I was looking across the room at you, gazing into your eyes, and I think you were looking across thinking, the fuck is he doing? Like, this this guy's looking at me. And maybe that's when you're thinking, I wonder if footy guy's going to come over and put me in a headlock. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what I knew, mate, from that moment was that we had to catch up again, and we did, and we kept catching up, and we had a few conversations, and then we took different directions and different pathways with, with what we do, which ended up. I'm going to say incredibly um, grateful for this, that we did quite a bit of work together. And mm. Um, mm. the learnings, what I loved about that too, was that there were every time that we worked together again, I learned something new about you. And it was like, mm. I wonder what it's going to be this time. And, um, and I remember some of our clients just, they would always be, because I'd start the sessions and I sort of started the sessions with some provocation stuff. And they'd after they'd worked with you for a while, <laughs> they'd always say, When's Stefan coming? Like, when does Stefan come and when do we get to do the really cool stuff? And I'm thinking, fucking hell, like I must be cho- I'm chopped liver, am I? I just must be here fulfilling the gaps. But, mate, look, I, um, I guess that's it for me. But what I do like, we haven't caught up for some time due to what's been going on in the world, but mm. even when there's a text message that comes through and, and they haven't been as regular as I'd like them to be or a phone call, to me it's just like we're picking up from – Whatever it was. Yeah. I think it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I was thinking about, like, as well. So that first interaction that we had, I knew there was something there and there was something growing in me about my desire to actually claim my leadership. And I saw that in you. And then I have to say, like, the generosity with which you gave up your time to hang out with me and help me start to consolidate my ideas about what I could offer, like that was life-changing for me, the fact that you were willing to spend that time. Regardless of what we did, and we did cool things when we would meet up, you would help me focus on what it was that I was thinking about. But regardless of that, just the act of someone who held your shape and your archetype looking at me and saying, I approve of this, that was really healing particularly when you consider the 
the background of feeling like, I don't know what I can describe it as, feeling like my masculinity was either not right or too much. Yeah. And then having an not that much older, but older male go, this is cool. Like what you're doing, it's weird and it's not me, but hey, go do that. Mm. And it makes me think of, do you remember there was a session that we held with a bunch of, I can't remember what the organisation was, but it was a bunch of dudes who worked in the construction industry. Yes, yep. Do you remember that? And yep. I had that day purchased a, like a bright red pair of shoes Yep. and I came full queer, like was wearing a fruity shirt and everything. And actually in that workshop that I ran, so I came in, a lot of alpha dudes in the room being dudes and you'd done some provocations. I came in and I went, I fully went at the like feeling and connection thing. And I actually made them do, and I didn't tell them this at the time. I made them do a tantric exercise where they looked into each other's eyes. Yep. And do you remember there was a dude who at the end of that session was like, oh, I was looking at my friend in the eyes. And I was like, what was that like? And he was like, oh, it was really weird. It was like looking at my wife, but I didn't want to have sex with him. And I was like, oh, that's called love. You were feeling a sense of love for your friend. It's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you can do that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you totally can. And in that group, there was even a dude who'd been dealing with loss. He, someone had passed away. And then right at the end, because we'd set up that thing, this support of these men just activated and I remember leaving that session and being like, this is the synergy of, I don't know how to describe it, two types of masculinity that don't normally speak to each other, being able to hold some kind of dynamic that allows a new thing to come in the room. It was really powerful. I remember that really clearly, but also like so many other times as well, just the work and the way that I think we were able to bring different things to the room but they came together like really really nicely and um yeah mate look I, I'm just I'm really grateful that I always think about lucky events and shit that happens along the way but it's just lucky mm. that you were walking past that day and then mm. you came in and you sat there and then we we did the work but the fascination that I have is in the storytelling when you tell your story about your backstory and what goes on and we're going to get into into the importance of creating play and playful workplaces because when you hear the word play and, and workplaces, people fucking run at a million miles an hour. What do you mean we're going to play? Yeah. But we'll get yeah. to that. But, mate, I don't want to spoil any of this, so I want you to just give us the rundown of the Stefan Bramble story because there is so much bloody gold in here, mate. Okay. So that, that question you had earlier about people trying to place my cultural background, that's a really common thing. And so this is actually one of the ways that I tell the stories. The, the way I start it is like, being half Italian, I really love talking about myself. So this is the best invitation one can give a, a half Italian is like, talk about yourself and tell your story. Also, if there are parts of my story that I don't tell and you're like, I'll oh, tell that bit, feel free to be like, talk about that bit. I'm gonna. Because since we've met, I've become fully committed to the idea, like leadership, leaders need to work on their narrative. They have to know how to tell the story of themselves. And this is based on work that I've done with Indigenous organisations where what I've learned from elders is, and the Aboriginal community in Australia and Torres Strait Islander community, is that 
before you do stuff together, you have to set the context of who you are. It is ethical, it's moral, and it actually makes the work better if you can let the other person know who you are and place them in the world. So I've been working a lot on my narrative and how I tell the story. So it changes all the time. But the way I would normally tell the story is I would say, I, <laughs> I was meant to be a girl. I was the last of the four pregnancies that my mother had, but before me was a late-term miscarriage. So there's actually a name for babies like me. I'm, I'm a rainbow baby. Right. Which is after the sadness of loss, the hope is instilled in this new child to heal those feelings of loss. And I was definitely meant to be a girl because all the pregnancies have been boys up until this point. And I came out as a boy but I was raised very much with the female sensibilities of Italian culture. I got the coffees for people. I did all those kind of things. And also being the youngest, the way I got power in the family was by manipulating the emotions of the rest of the family, trying to keep mum happy, but also trying to pit all the <laughs> pit everyone else against each other. So as I had power that, sort of morphed itself over time into a real interest in the theatre because what is the theatre if not manipulating people's emotions, yeah. making people feel good or bad for your purposes? Didn't always do it ethically, but that was sort of how I fronted up and was very interested in the performing arts because I felt this thing of like when I was on stage, I could be a murderer, I could be a king, I could be a lover, I could be whatever, and that felt in some ways more real than reality did and also the connection to an audience I can remember in year 10 doing anything goes and having a moment where I sung where I swear to god I could feel the minds of 200 people in the audience it's yep. still electric to this day so anyway I did that both my parents are teachers never wanted to be a teacher but then realized that I needed money once I left high school and I had all this background in performance and you could get paid lots of money to teach little kids drama did that, realised to my annoyance that I really liked it and I was really good at it, which led to a teaching degree. And then I was being an emergency teacher in high schools. And the really cool thing about being an emergency teacher is you get this game of these really smart people who are usually the rough kids who don't want to do any work, but they're usually really smart. And if you were clever you could appeal to their smartness to make them want to learn something that they didn't usually want to work with, learn with their normal teacher. And I fucking loved that. And so I sort of developed this skill of engagement. How do you engage people in a topic? That then led to me realizing that I hadn't really fulfilled my acting urge. So I decided to audition for like the proper acting schools, NIDA, VCA and WAPA. Didn't get into NIDA, got into VCA, and then did three of the most intense years of study of my life where, God, acting school, my God, was brilliant, but it really does a number on your brain. And I, I went from being the good actor in a small pond to being the normal actor amongst really talented actors. Left there and ended up, like I tried to be an actor, but I wasn't, I didn't really care. And I now look back and I realise it's because I didn't want to be a working actor. There was some other thing. And what it was, was 
I tore my calf muscle through an accident for the first ever play that I was paid to be in and I had to pull out of it. And at exactly that time, a friend from teaching school called up and said, would you like to be part of this youth work program where we work with disadvantaged kids for a week and we help them figure out what they want to do with their life? And I was like, well, I can't walk. I've torn a calf muscle. And he said, oh, well, on this day at this place, I was going to get you to come and see a presentation that these young people were doing. And I was like, that's really interesting because that exact day is when my physio wants me to go for a walk that's exactly the length of where this place is. And so I went and I walked in and I had one of those moments where I was like, I don't believe in a God, but if I did, I would believe that I had been placed here to be part of this thing. Uh, these kids, they were so engaged with themselves and excited about the world. And so I just talked myself into a job and then spent the next four years traveling around Australia, working with disadvantaged kids from about age 14 and helping them figure out what they wanted to do with their life. And that was beautiful life-changing, completely healed me. The very last part of this story is that during that program, I would work on these roughies for how they could communicate. So they come in on the first day and they kind of not look at you and kind of be angry. And then I build up rapport and I do a communication workshop. And then they'd go and meet the people who funded the program and they'd walk in the room And they would be the ones making it easy for the adults to talk who were too nervous. Yeah. And I was like, oh, shit, there's something in the work that I'm doing with these young people that also the adults need. And that then launched itself into a consultancy where we met. And essentially it started with helping people access their authentic communication and authentic selves through play So as you're really talking to someone, not doing like the five steps of effective communication. Love it, mate. Love it. Love you sharing. And you gave me a beautiful invitation at the start to say, if there's part of my story that I haven't (laughs) added in here, and there are many, many, many parts, mate, but I want to go to, I want to go to your adventure, your experience, your experiment of going overseas and studying the art of clown. Oh, yes. We cannot miss that because there is gold here. Okay. And so that's the origin of my business. Thank you, Mark, for reminding me. So at the end, near the end of my time at the youth work organisation, right at that point where I was like, oh, I do this communication training and adults seem to need it as much as the young people do. What is it that I'm doing? Why does it work? I didn't really know why because everything I do is very instinctual, which is based on actor training. We spend a lot of time learning to listen to our instincts and not think about them too much. So I would just do this stuff that would work and I wouldn't really know why. Anyway, during this time, I decided to go with my best friend to Paris to study clown with the world's best clown teacher. He's called Philippe Gaulier and He's the person that trained Sasha Baron Cohen, Emma Thompson, famous people go to this school. And you can drop in and do a, a short sequence with him. And I did four weeks there with him, but it was life-changing. Now, this is my hero, the biggest fucking hero of, of my life. I love the way he works. He's also incredibly scary. He teaches by putting his tongue in his cheek and mocking everyone. And that's sort of the concept of clown, is that you mock everything because everyone is actually beautiful. 
So we mock our fear that we're not good enough by going, yeah, you're not good enough. You're gross. I hate you. You know, it's really beautiful and really full on. Anyway, I go to the school with my best mate who I graduated (laughs) acting school with, who was the best actor at the school. He was the best actor and I was the one that was struggling. Yeah. So we go to the, the clown school and I thought I would own it because I thought he can do the serious acting. I can do the clown. No, 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 my friend. We went to that acting school. He was freaking awesome. And I was just so nervous and shit. And I knew I was shit. And I would get on stage and Philippe would be like, yeah, shit, get off. He would play like machine gun sounds and you would have to die on stage. Anyway, we do this exercise. And essentially two people are on stage. We're waiting for him to say go, and then we have to steal a ball and run to our side of the room. But while we're waiting, we have to tell a story. And he goes, Stefan, tell a story. So I start talking, and it's not funny. And I look at the audience, and again, it's not funny, it's not good, no one's interested. And what happens is I just start crying, (laughs) and I start ranting about how I travelled across the world to perform in front of my hero and my best friend is doing a better job and no one thinks I'm funny and it's, it was a really fucking big mistake to be here right now. <laughs> and then everyone started laughing and I could feel, I felt, I knew I'd connected with them and I felt it in my heart. And then I went off stage and then you come back on and the teacher gives you notes and he still teased me. Oh, he's big, strange man. But he also was like, best compliment I've ever gotten. He was like, but he is a good idiot. He's very alive. And then he said to me, and he sort of dropped the mocking thing for a moment, and he looked at me in the eyes and he was like, for two weeks I have been watching you come on stage and lie and pretend like you're not scared. What you just did then is what I've been waiting for you to do. And he said, don't you ever come on my stage again and pretend to be something you're not. Hmm. And it was at that moment I realised that on the train to the school every morning, I'd been reading Brene Brown's book on vulnerability. Dr. Brene Brown, I love her. I think she's amazing. By her own admission, she's really good at telling you the theory of why you need to be vulnerable. I don't think she's very good at telling you how. Yeah, And what I realized in that moment is clown, the central tenet of clown is walk on stage, show us your heart because we can see it already and show us your vulnerability and we will either cry or laugh with you, but you can't lie. And I was like, ah, clown is the practice of being vulnerable. Yep. Now, it doesn't mean that we need to make managers into professional clowns, but what it does mean is that the art of clown can teach a manager to actually do that, the hardest thing in the world, which is to show up as yourself without armour. And then that was the basis of the business that led to working on all this stuff. There was a great need to hear that story to move us into the next bit. But before I do that, I just want to pick up on a couple of things here because I think these are really important for the listeners. And, again, thank you for your vulnerability. Um, The question of why does it work, and and I really love this because it's like, fuck, how does this work work? Mm. When people say to me, and I'm sure they say to you, what do you do and how does it work? I'm like, fucking, I don't know sometimes. It just happens. And... The other thing you said, mate, which I love, it's instinctual. Mm. I think a lot of people get caught up in, I need to be a certain way. 
and I need to turn up in a certain way, and particularly in the corporate space, and not not just that, in family, community, and other things as well, and just the ability to drop that armour and just go, fuck it, I'm um, I'm fronting up as who I am. And here's the thing that leads us into the next bit, because the other thing I love about you is that you've been talking about the power of play and how it can help to connect human beings to themselves and to other human beings and whatever mm. else for a long time. And, and the thing is, it's not been popular. Mm. When people hear that fucking play, you want to come in and do play stuff and mm. be idiots and all this sort of thing. What I really love about it is you've just stuck to it. And I'm going to make an assumption here. That's fucking uncomfortable, but you know so well that play is an important ingredient to bring more humanity into workplaces and these sorts of things that I admire someone who goes, fuck it, people might be ridiculing me at the moment and sort of Mm -hmm. shutting doors on me, but that's not going to stop me from doing what I'm doing, which is now studying an MBA, mate, is that right? Uh, No, it is a Master's of Management and Leadership. Right. Yeah. But there's a there's a big component that you are stepping into around how do you incorporate mm. playfulness and play. So here's my first question for you. Mm. Fucking big question too, mate. This should go forever. What is play? Okay, you should definitely keep me to time and ring the bell if I go on too long about this. What is play? Please put this disclaimer. I'm gonna I'm getting him very close to the microphone for a disclaimer. I am going to say things that are incorrect and untrue and that people will disagree with very validly because I kind of don't know what I'm talking about and do at the same time. Disclaimer done. So it's so great you're asking me this question now because I'm literally writing a report on this at the moment, an essay on this at the moment. I'll talk about how I conceive of play in the realm of the workplace. How can we possibly make something new without a sense of play in my mind it's like it's a lightness of how we come together so as in that lightness we can discover something new now it could be about how we work it could be a product but when it comes down to it remember how you learnt you learnt via playing yep this all becomes really clear when when people have children Because you're like, cool, when the baby was a baby, how did you teach it it was itself? How did you teach it it was a thing? You know how you did it? Everyone plays the same game. It's called peekaboo. I am here, I am not here. That is a game. Now, it's a game and it's play that in that space, the individual can learn something new about itself. That is no less true when we are adults. And it's interesting because I can now put some like academic wankery behind it. There is a wonderful human called Donald Winnicott. He's a psychoanalyst by training and he worked in the area that I'm studying, which is a thing called system psychodynamics, the unconscious in groups. And essentially he codified an idea that play is a place in which the light and dark aspects of ourselves can come to some kind of resolution, yeah? So that's why, like, a lot of games are a bit scary. Like, even if you think of peekaboo, it's scary. The person disappears, but they come back again, but they disappear, but they come back again. So it's a way of the unconscious making sense of the 
tensions within ourselves. Now, when you think about this as a manager, well, what do you need to do when you manage? There are tensions in your team and they're good. The, the best creativity comes out of the space in between the tensions. So I haven't spoken to you about this, but this is a new thing that's coming up in my brain. So the concept of play allows the group to understand itself in some cool way. Also, it lets us be free to embody things that might feel a bit dangerous. That sounds very wanky, but I'll give a really clear point. If I do literally a play, like a play, like Macbeth, yeah? When I play Macbeth, I get to play the part of me that wants to kill the king and take over. Now, that's a part of me. Now, I get to play that. I get to live in it. I get to really go after it. And then when the play stops, the director, the other actors can be like, oh, that was really interesting. What did you learn? Blah, 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 blah. But play puts a frame around something where you can get a bit messy because once the play is done, we can take what we've learned. So for me, it's a tool that actually helps us understand ourselves. And Winnicott says a great quote, play is something that children do to practice being adults and adults do when they're allowed to do it. And so what we have to do is create environments where adults are allowed to play so as we can understand ourselves and how we work better. Was that too wanky a description? I'm worried that since I've been going to uni, I've become a, an academic wanker. Not at all, mate. I particularly liked, well, I liked all of it, but particularly that last little bit. And I've just made a note here to make sure we pick that up as a teaser for the episode about that piece about children and about adults, because that's sort of where I wanted to lead to now. So not wanky. I reckon as someone who is a an absolute supporter of combining lived experience with academic wank, I reckon <laughs> you just did it brilliantly. So thank you. Good. Good. Um, so here's the, here's the next question. At what point in time did we older kids lose our playfulness? And I know there's not just like a, it's, it's at fucking 17 because yeah. some older kids are still really, really playful. Mm. I put mm. you into that category. Mm. But some mm. of us, and I say when I was, remember corporate Mark that you saw with the shirt on and yeah. the footy dude? Yeah. He wasn't very fucking playful then. No, I can imagine. I mean, well, he was getting more play. I think the reason why we connected, actually, let's put that story in the frame of play. What happened there? Both of us saw the other. But instead of going, fuck the other, I fucking hate meathead corporate dudes in suits and shirts. Fuck this guy. I'm going to sit in this room and I'm going to derail him. All right, can, or, I, have my, can I have my go now? Yeah, yeah. Fuck that guy sitting across from me who I can't work out what the fuck, where he comes from. He <laughs> yeah. could be anything and he looks like a weirdo and I don't know what the, why would I ever want to see him again? Yeah. What happened after that? Yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to snipe that person and make sure blah, 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 blah. So we have those things. But what did we both do? We saw the other and went, actually, what happens if I go towards the other and we figure out something between us? That's essentially like, I think, forgive me people that know Donald Winnicott that are listening, I, that's the Winnicottian idea of what play does is we essentially lived it out. Yep. The question of when do we let go of it? Well, yeah, it's really interesting. Look, 
I think there's some things about like once you start entering sexual maturity, like you start to worry about the group and, you know, certain things are taboo and blah, 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 blah. But I don't think that's actually as important for your listeners or what we're talking about when we talk about management in an organisation. I think a thing happens around work where we have decided that play is the opposite of work. Gotcha. And so when we become adults who work, well, that play thing is left behind because that's what kids do. Kids do play. We're adults now. So maybe that's what I believe, that people believe that the unifying thing of what an adult is, is the definition is someone who does not play. Yep. Or someone who plays but over off in the corner, you know. We make it fetishized and it can't be in this world because if I show up to work and I'm playful, what will people think of me? When we play, we might discover a part of ourselves that feels uncomfortable. So think about kids when they play. One of the things that kids do is they play with gender. I want to be a princess. Oh, but you're a boy. Can a boy be a princess? Yeah, it can. I'll show you. Let me show you how a boy can be a princess. Blah, 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 blah. Now, if we did that at work, if I'm a manager going, let's play, what happens if the game we're playing is yell at the manager or the game we play is blah, 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 blah. So there's risk. Play is so risky that we are fearful of the risk of it. So then we shut it down. The problem with that is that it is the way that we learn. (laughs) So we're actually saying no more learning. And actually play is work. It actually is work. It's a better way of defining work than work is, I think, because we're getting, and now, Does that mean, does all play have to be fun? No. Does all play have to be happy? No. We've all watched plays where people get murdered and horrible things happen. So we get it in an artistic sense, but in a work sense, we've kind of shut it down. And I think the core of it happens because we are scared of it and we're scared of ourselves and what might come up through play. So the moment that we decide to do that action, to become frightened of what we could become. I think that's when it happens. I I love it, mate. So I'm just going to relay a couple of experiences of being in the room with you, with older kids, as in adults, who Mm. who may be in this play is not work mindset. Now, the absolute fucking fear on people's faces when you put them into a circle and you do mm. something like, we're going to do barnyard animals now. Yeah, And even myself, I'm like, fucking hell, you want me to do the uh, uh, oink, oink, <laughs> and all this yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. But what I'm going to say is 15 minutes later, I could be back at preschool. I could yeah. be back at, and I'm going to say more so primary school, preschool type thing because yeah. there's almost like they've lost the this isn't work thing, but it's scary. Yeah. But it's scary fun as well. And it's amazing to see how much that changes the way people look at each other by doing some things that scare the shit out of them. Yeah. But all of a sudden they're doing it. So this sort of takes me into something that I think people are going to be really, really, some people who will be listening here will be like, how the fuck did this guy get this title? Because, you know, titles are really important. We know that, Stefan, don't we? Yeah. The Director of Play and Connection. How (laughs) fucking dare you get that title? my friend. Um, So as the director of Play and Connection, what I want you to share with the the listeners is 
What are three simple and practical tools and tips that you would give as a director of play and connection to workplaces to embrace play as work and as a way of understanding self, understanding others and connecting? I fucking love this question because, I mean, I think one thing that we share is unless something is practical, it is useless. Yep. And I'm really enjoying the world of academia, but one of the main criticisms that my university is very open to me voicing is that, like, what does this mean? What does all this academics mean for someone on the ground that's doing the work? So I really love this question. I would say number one tip is do not take my perspective as true. Go and have a look at the research around play. Don't do play if you don't believe in it. That's my point. And it's okay if you don't. If you're listening to this and you're like, it really isn't for me, then don't go near it. (laughs) Like you've got to authentically find out whether you buy this or not. So the number one thing is like (laughs) serious play. Treat it seriously. Go and find out about play. There's a great book by an author called Stuart Brown that I'm reading at the moment around the sort of scientific reasoning behind play and that there is play in everything we do, even across species, there's play. So get behind it first. If you believe what I believe, then here are some things that you can actually do that roll it out in your workplace. So I think number one is the idea that we need to be reflective in how we work. So this is like the underpinning of play. If you want to play for learning, you have to play and then look at the play afterwards. So if you don't look at the play afterwards, it's just for joy, which is totally fine and you can do that. But if you want to play for making your organisation stronger and healthier, there has to be looking at the play. How do you do that? Well, you frame or contain the play within an event. Hey, we're about to think about this new merger that we're doing. I don't know, some worky thing, yeah? But we're going to do it in a really playful way because I want you to think of new things. But before we start, I'd love to know what everyone's bringing into the meeting. Speak for a minute, blah, 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 blah. That sets up a start. Then the play can happen. Then I've I've told you that play is going to happen. Hey, so everyone, let's do this weird thing, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of it, once it's done, you have to then stop and go, okay, what did we learn from it? So it's actually building up, treating it like something serious, like actually something that has use by putting a frame around it. That's number one, like reflective. And also there's a lot of research to suggest that the more reflective practice you do, the less claims of like bullying that happen in workplaces, all that kind of stuff. Number two, learn some games. Learn some bloody games. And they're not hard. There's another book which I have in front of me called Rituals for Virtual Meetings. It literally is just a list of games. Now, What's a game? It can be as simple as like, I've got one for you right What about this one, mate? What? Good day, Johnny. Oh, good day, Johnny. Oh, mate, do not even try to get me to explain good day, Johnny, over the internet. (laughs) Um, It is a really good game. Google good day, Johnny. You'll probably find the answer to it. But 
But what's a game? A game is just something that puts people into the frame of mind of playing to me. So it can be as simple as, hey, we want to be playful, so we're just going to play the quickest game in the world. Everyone needs to say hello to someone else in the group. No person can be said hello to twice. I'm going to start. It means that the last person will say hello to me again. Now, you explain the rules like that, so they're kind of confusing. People go, oh, my God, I don't really understand. And then you go, cool, let's go. And then people fuck up. What's good about that? Someone fucks up. And then what's the first thing that happens when someone fucks up? Everybody laughs. And laughter is this shared moment. So we've just created this shared moment together where we have this experience together and we've just experienced that it's okay to fuck up. Cool. We've got people in this creative area. Then the thing that you do is you drop the thing that you need worked on in a creative way. Now, that's where the art comes in. And creative way can be anything. There's a great internet tool. I work in a remote company, so I'm, I'm very in all of this stuff. But there's a great internet tool. It is called Figma. And it's just a digital platform, digital whiteboard, but they've made all these tools. Oh, it's so good. It's this thing called Fig Jam in Figma. And it's all about making tools that are fun to play with. And your mouse on the shared whiteboard is a little hand. And if you run the two hands over each other, they give each other a high five. So just doing the work in that platform makes it playful. So it's not, it's not like you need to change heaps of shit, but it's the lightness with which you hold the work. Well, a couple of things are picked up here. So don't do it if you don't believe in it. So here's rule number one in my like: do not be a fucking compliance freak. Like, you yeah. know, down the road they're doing this, so we should follow them because I read something on LinkedIn and we should do it, although we don't mm. believe in it. We mm. do it because we want to tick a box. I, I get a sense of don't do that. Treat it seriously. Be reflective. Stand back from it, from the play, and say what happened. What happened in the play? What, what did we? What did we notice? And this is what really re resonated with me because you talked a lot about this in the room when we worked together. When people fucked up, they were the great moments of connection where mm. all of a sudden, laughter and being laughed at mm. was actually okay. Mm. Um, so, mate, I think they are they are incredible things. Hey, um, I loved it also when you said that things need to be practical. And look, uh, shout out to my academic friends as well. I know that that's not the world they live in, but if you can combine those two things, it works pretty well. Here's a question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast, and I've learned a lot from this because sometimes I think it's just as simple. It's everything simple, not complex and complicated. But I also do think this, Stefan, is that. For some reason, human beings have been romanced by the flame of complicated and complex, and mm. we, we tend to go towards that more than the, the simple things. Like, here's a simple game. Go around and yeah. say your name. It's like, fuck, I'm, all, I'm confused. I don't know what to do, and it's all complicated, mm. when really it's not that complicated, but maybe we wanted to make it complicated. Why do human beings, if you think this, you may have another thought. Why do we try and make things more complicated than or complex than they need to be if we do? What I have noticed in my practice in the past like two years is that most things are a balance. So I will talk about, hey, you know, I think this is really important in leadership. And someone will be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also the opposite is also important sometimes. And I'll be like, oh, fuck, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, it totally is. In not all instances should we do X. I would even apply this to play. 
There are times in which you must put down play. I'm doing it now in the tone of my speech. If I'm leading and something is happening, we know this. Teachers do that. Teachers stop play when something is unsafe. Yep. That's it. Game done. Now, that is necessary. And so I think the reason why people have a tendency to make things complex is because they are. Yep. Yeah, (laughs) cool. And, And actually what you need is you need both. So you, Mark, have a a really great quality to boil things down to their simplest. And you would work really well with people that would boil it up to their, or freeze it up if we're going the opposites, freeze it up to its most complex. Now, what happens then is how do those two people talk to each other and how do they learn? How does the simple learn from complexity and the complex learn from simplicity? I love that idea. Now, what's interesting in that is it does actually come back to play because when you play, you're not in, I'm just realizing this now in the moment, when you play, you're not in control of the play, even if you're playing by yourself because you surprise yourself. So when I invite the opposite shit, you're complex and I'm simple. When I invite the opposite to play with me, then we have the chance of surprising ourselves. Mm. I think. I love it. And, and you know what I love because I have been quite, I've been challenged a lot on this in, the, in all the podcasts and I love that challenge of it's both. Mm. We need both. We need to have both there. Geez, mate, we could go on forever, but <laughs> where do the listeners, I know where to find you. But where do the listeners find you, mate, to find out more about the work you do and the magic that you bring to this world of ours? That's an interesting question. So I <laughs> I have two websites and I keep them both up because one of them is very funny because it's not a great website. And that one is called stephanbramble.com. It was written, oh, eight years ago. <laughs> um, but I keep it up. To remind people of where I've come from. Nice. And there's another there's another website called thebrazen.co.co. Now, what I will say is like during pandemics times, I went into permanent employment and study. So those things have been pretty dormant, but I know those things are waking up again. Yeah. As we're unlocking down, I'm also like, I want to be connecting with people outside of the organization I work with and continuing to learn from the other. So that's that's where I exist on the internet and I'm always up for conversations. So there's emails, there's phone numbers, there's all of that attached to those things. And you're on LinkedIn as well? I am on LinkedIn and I have had to update my LinkedIn because I hadn't done that for a very long time as well. <laughs> so yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Good. So the brazen is B-R-A-Z-E-N, that's right, yeah? Yes, dot .co. Dot .co. Yeah. And then your other eight-year-old website that you just like people to go to to go, this is what I was and this is what I am <laughs> yeah. now. And uh, that's Stefan, stephanbramble.com and that's S-T-E-F-A-N-B-R-A-M-B-L-E.com. Yep. So, mate, the last time I saw you in the flesh, and, and I love this about you because of your generosity of your time too, is you, you emceed the launch of my second book, which was way back in – I think March the 11th, 2019. Week before the lockdown. Yeah, the week before we actually got locked down. And as I said, we haven't really spent that much time in between talking and whatnot. But mm. again, what I love, mate, is we've come back on here and it's like it's like it's March the 12th, 2019 for me. Yeah, yeah, me too. So, me mate, too. 
thank you so much for coming on. And um, I look forward to us catching up human to human again pretty soon. Oh, mate, thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. You know, what's really interesting is that, as I said, uh, Stefan emceed the launch of my second book on March the 11th, 2019. And we really haven't caught up since then due to the pandemic. But today felt like March the 12th, 2019. It was like we hadn't not caught up with each other for nearly two years. It's like we caught up yesterday. He is an incredible human being. Some of the things he said today that stuck with me, play is not the opposite of work. So we've got to get that sort of thought out of our minds that, that you know, play's not work and work's not play and that we could combine them and, and find a way to then go towards each of those things to get some great outcomes in, in our businesses. I loved it when uh, his clown coach uh, in France said to him that uh, he's a good idiot. And this idea that being an idiot is a way for people to play and a way for people to connect because the idiot brings laughter and laughter brings connection and don't hide and be, be yourself. So I think they, they were really, really interesting things. His, his tips and his tools around how to embrace it in the workplace, make sure if you're going to do this sort of work, if you're going to incorporate play into your work as work, that you're, not, you're doing it because you believe in it. Treat it as serious work. Look back on the play that happened and don't be like, oh, it was fun playing, but then have a bit of a stand back from it and go, well, what happened during that play? What did you see happening between human beings? I think that's a great thing as well. And think about what we learned. What did we learn from the play? So learn some games. And the last one I'm going to say is let people fuck up because when they do, that's when the laughter also happens and that's when people build connection. What a title that he has, Director of Play and Connection. I know there'll be some people who think, I'm going to go and have a chat to the team in uh, HR who come up with the titles and that's what I want to be called. So as I always say, if you love this one, start tapping those thumbs, give it a review and um, please review it because I love seeing the reviews. And if you liked it, share it with your friends, share it widely. I'm sure there's many of us that would love to be stepping into more play and looking at play as work and not as something else. But until next time, people, as I always say, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now.